When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If Putin likes Donald Trump, I consider that an asset, not a liability. So keep reminding yourself, this is not normal. The more he's willing to forgive and forget Putin, the more suspicion. And I think it's going to dog his presidency until he breaks this cycle. Financial dealings of these guys, Trump, Cohen, Kushner, they're all on Mueller's table. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who enjoys being spanked with Forbes. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. You know, from Stormy Daniels to Cambridge Analytica to Russiagate, there's just a hell of a lot of Trump scandal battling for our attention right now. And that's making it tough for the tender baby Trump scandals that are struggling to emerge. But even the neglected scandals are just unbelievable. Like this one about Elliot Broidy, a top Trump fundraiser, a convicted felon, and it seems the top salesperson of American foreign policy. The crime to which Brody pled guilty was handing out a million dollars in bribes to New York state officials in exchange for $250 million in state pension fund business. He avoided jail fine by paying $18 million in restitution. Now he's a defense contractor. White-collar felonies don't slow you down much in Republican politics these days. Brody is right now National Deputy Finance Chairman of the Republican National Committee, and he served as a finance committee official for both Trump's campaign and Trump's inauguration. In case you're wondering what those jobs entail, they involve throwing lavish parties for Trump and Republican officials. And in exchange, you can invite your clients. In Brody's case, that met officials from places like Congo, Angola, and Romania. Brody's big cause recently has been supporting the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, against its neighbor and enemy, Qatar. In a private meeting, he lobbied Trump to meet with the crown prince of Abu Dhabi and fire Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who he thought tilted in Qatar's direction. Trump took both of his good friend Brody's suggestions. In exchange for his influence, Brody demands extraordinary fees, $2 million, $6 million, and looks for defense contracts with these countries worth tens and hundreds of millions. According to the Wall Street Journal, Brody allegedly asked for a $75 million fee to get the Justice Department to drop an investigation into the Malaysian State Investment Fund. Even by the corrupt standards of Washington influence peddling, the scale of Brody's sleaze is just staggering. In any other administration, to coin a phrase, Elliot Brody would be the red-hot center of a first-tier scandal. It would be Brodygate, but in Trump-Kushner world, he's just another alligator in the swamp, a run-of-the-mill crony, a link in Trump's kleptocratic food chain. There's a long line here for spankings. Coming up on today's show, the Russification of American democracy. I'll be back with the historian and author Timothy Snyder right after this message. Joining me on the line is Timothy Snyder. He's a professor of European history at Yale University and the author of books including On Tyranny and Bloodlands. His new one is The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, Europe, America. Tim, thanks for joining me on the show today. Very glad to. 
So before we get into it, why did you want to do another book on top of on tyranny, which tried to distill some of the issues down uh, around Trump into the the um, the most essential form? This sort of goes a little longer. What 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 were you trying to do? Yeah, you're ascribing to me more rationality and intentionality <laughs> than I really have. Like like the rest of us, I have to react to events. So the book that we're talking about today, The Road to Unfreedom, has been underway for about five or six years. What happened rather was that On Tyranny jumped out of the middle of this book. One of the reasons why I was able to come up with all of these examples from contemporary Eastern Europe that I use in On Tyranny is that I was in the middle of deep, deep, deep research for Road to Unfreedom. So On Tyranny is a book about uh, what to do now. Road to Unfreedom is a book about where we are now and how we got to where we are now. So the, the two are in, a, in, in an interesting and close relationship, although they're different kinds of books. This is a, it's a tremendously interesting book, Tim. And what I, what I like best about it is the way you connect what's happened in Russian politics with what's been happening in European and American politics at the level of ideas. And at the core, you talk about something called the politics of eternity. You talk about a shift from the politics of inevitability to the politics of eternity. Maybe you could just say a little bit about each of those con- concepts. First, what's the, the older form, the politics of inevitability? What is that? Yeah, this is a great first question. So let me just start by saying something about about Russia. This is very much a book about Russia, and it begins with Russian thinkers and Russian ideas, and then it moves into Russian politics and Russian practices and lands in, in the election of 2016. But what I'm very much trying to avoid is the sense that Russia is other, mm-hmm. that Russia is something else. Uh, I'm very much trying to avoid the idea that everything was honky-dory in the U.S. or in Europe, and then suddenly the nasty Russians came along and ruined it. Instead, what I'm trying to do is show Russia as part of, maybe a leading part of, maybe a revealingly leading part of, general intellectual and political developments that are taking place across the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, the, The basic premise of the book is that if you look at Russia, you can get a hint of where we might be going, that Russia's not other. The reason why Russian policies work on us is that we're all part of one big process. The second important premise that you mentioned in your question is that ideas matter a lot. Part of the politics of inevitability, which is where we've been, I think, since the revolutions of 1989, is the notion that ideas don't really matter, that there aren't really ideas, that the age of ideology is over because we all know that there's no alternative to liberalism and democracy. We all know that capitalism will automatically generate good things. We, we all know that history is over and, and so forth. The politics sort of, of end of history, end of history type yeah. ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the problem, I mean, there are many problems with the end of history, but one of the problems with the end of history is that you then can get all fuzzy about what alternatives actually look like. And then when they sneak up on you, you don't notice that they're coming. You keep saying over and over again that your ideological enemy is actually just a pragmatist. He just looks like he has different ideas, but he doesn't really have different ideas. But in fact, people sometimes really do have different ideas. And one different idea from the politics of inevitability, from this thing that we take for granted, this idea of progress, which has been you know, breaking down for us in different ways in different times for the last few years, one idea, one idea that's an alternative is the politics of eternity. So whereas inevitability says there aren't alternatives Things are getting better. Even if it looks like things aren't getting better, they really are all in all, just take an average. The politics of eternity says, uh, no, there isn't really a future. What there is is a kind of cycle. 
you keep going back to the same event. And the event is that the, the enemy, internal or external, is always at the gate. That we, the good people, the innocent victims, are always at the mercy of these irrational, malevolent enemies. That, that history isn't a line into the future. History is more like a circle where the same thing keeps happening over and over and over again. And you know, this may seem a little bit abstract, but I think it's really important to see that time is essential to politics. If you don't think that there's a future, then it's very hard to gather your energies and your thoughts in the present to do anything about it. And one way to characterize what's been happening from Russia through Europe to the United States in the last few years is precisely the sense that we can't concentrate on the future because we're constantly being bombarded either by nostalgic ideas going back to the 1930s, like America First, or we're being bombarded by the postmodern news cycle, which prevents us from, from concentrating. Either way, we seem to go around and around in circles and instead of being able to think about the present or the future. You have a striking description of uh, Russian policy, now Russian foreign policy. You say basically that because Russia can't become a stronger society, its goal becomes, and Putin's goal is to make other countries weaker. I mean, is that, that, is that a reflection of this idea of the politics of eternity, that you're sort of stuck where you are? There's not a prospect of social betterment. So basically, you want everyone to be equally miserable. Yeah. No, you, 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 you're very astutely linking two important arguments in, in the book. That's exactly right. So Russia has developed a very interesting and on its own terms, quite effective and intelligent foreign policy, which in the book I call strategic relativism. The idea is that Russia has topped out, at least in terms of 20th century ideas of strength, um, economic growth and technological innovation. Russia has topped out. Demography, you know, anything you want to name from the classical measures of power, Russia can't really get any stronger than it is now. But what it can do is try to change the terms of the contest from those rational, rational measurable forms of strength into irrational, unmeasurable forms of strength. What it can try to do is change the contest from one of, of, of economic and political power into one of psychological and, and cyber power. And that begins at home. When, when you have a situation of uh, where one oligarchical clan, that is the Putin clan, has actually taken power and controls all the resources. Naturally, you're closing off progress. You're closing off uh, social advancement, a sense of progress for the rest of your population. There are two ways to have social advancement. One is to have a welfare state, and the other is to have a market that works. And it's it's great if you can have both of those things at the same time. In Russia, you don't really have either. And so what you need is a story about how it's good that things are never really going to change. And that's where the politics of eternity comes in. The politics of eternity, you say, whatever is bad is happening. Of course, it's not us. It's the Americans. It's the Europeans. It's their corruption. It's their decadence. They're constantly, try they're constantly after us. And that can work regardless of what the Americans or the Europeans are actually doing. But if you, if, you, if you go after the Americans and Europeans long enough, they'll eventually start doing things to you like sanctions, which you then work into, into the same story. So but this becomes foreign policy because if your story to your own people is, look, there's no alternative to this, this is just the way things are, you, ha you can't have, for example, a Ukraine which has a rule of law state or, or, or real democratic elections or is more prosperous than Russia because that would show an alternative. Ideally, you don't want to have a European Union, which has the rule of law and which is more prosperous. You, ideally, you don't want to have the United States, which has the rule of law and which is more prosperous. What you want to try to do is bring everyone down to your level. 
you want to you want to use the instruments that you have, which are psychological and which are cyber, to try to push nudge everybody in your direction. And then you and your people with you can kind of fold your arms complacently and say, yeah, this is true. You know, it really doesn't get any better than this. The whole world is like this. The whole world is just one big corrupt oligarchy. That's just the way life is. This is much less inspiring, by the way, as an idea, as many of the 20th century ideas, but this is where we are. I mean, is that idea of, of just doing damage to so many uh, societies that are perceived in some sense as hostile is that a rallying cry internally, or is that just something you do under the table through the Internet Research Agency? It's it's both simultaneously, and the the fundamental link is is intellectual. The fundamental idea is that nothing really is true. There isn't really a factual world out there. That's that's the basic link. So what what Russian television teaches its people to do is to doubt everything. Um, it's not just the, it's not propaganda really in the old sense. What Russian television does is that it provides whenever anything happens, like the poisoning at Salisbury or the downing of of the Malaysian air civilian airliner over Ukraine, whatever happens, ru- the Russian population gets five or six or eight or ten different and usually contradictory versions of of what took place. The idea is not to force through one propaganda vision. The idea is to teach people that really we don't know. Who knows? Radical skepticism about everything, including what what the propaganda itself is saying. Exactly. Cynicism sublimated to the point of becoming perfect naivete, where at the end of the day, what you think is, yeah, nothing's true. There are no facts. So I'm just going to, I would prefer to believe my own lies. That's the new form of nationalism. Um, Everybody lies. So therefore, I prefer my own lies. I'm going to prefer Russian lies. Or if you're an American, I prefer American lies. That's the new form of nationalism. And see, that's also the instrument of foreign policy. Because although, of course, it's true that the Russians supported Trump, it's of course, it's true they have specific goals. The main thing that they're after inside the United States discussion, which they call the psychosphere, by the way, the main thing that they're after is to try to break our sense that there are universal truths or that there are facts that we can all talk about, to break us into um, into clans who have their own sense of truth and who can't communicate with the other clans and therefore can't support a rule of law state or a republic. That's what they're after. So there is a kind of intellectual unity to it all. You talk a lot about Putin's interest in a 20th century Russian thinker called even Ilin, if if I've got that right. Why is it, does Eileen represent that ideology? Why is he so important to Putin and Putinism? Yeah, I, I, I start I start with Eileen for a bunch of reasons. One is that I'm I'm really trying to make the case that intellectual history matters, and not only in in Russia. Eileen is an easy case because here you have a figure who lots of Russians actually read starting in the 1990s. He's he's someone whose remains were reburied at the orders of Putin with the help of one of his closest oligarch friends. He's someone whose papers were repatriated from Michigan State back to Russia. He's someone who Putin has cited repeatedly in his most important speeches. He's someone who Putin cites at very important junctures like the invasion of Ukraine. So he's a very obvious example of a of a of a far right, indeed a fascist thinker of the twentieth century who was revived in the twenty first century. And and I this is something which is happening all around us. It's not just in Russia, it's also in places like Silicon Valley where oddly Thinkers of the 20s and 30s are enjoying a renaissance. Um, Steve Bannon is another obvious example of this. So I'm trying to show that ideas matter. Now, why does Eileen matter for Putin in particular? Eileen simultaneously gives you the notion that Russia is special and that nothing is really true. 
So Eileen's description of the world is that the world is a broken place, that there's no truth in this world. There's only truth in another world. And only in Russia, says Eileen, is there access to that other perfect world. So Russia is the only chance to save humanity. And what you do in the rest of the world, you, you lie, you cheat, you steal. It doesn't matter so long as fundamentally you're, you're helping Russia. Now, I'm simplifying Eileen tremendously. He's, he's, he, was a, he was an interesting thinker. He wrote about 40 books in a couple of different languages. But that's why I think Eileen is so attractive. For Putin, he's a, he's a Russian He's a serious thinker, and he gives you this notion that we, Russia, are always innocent because we're the country that has access to real godly truth. The rest of the world is just this meaningless farrago of fragments. The rest of the world means nothing. And so therefore, everything we do and every lie we tell is all right. So this is sort of the ideology for Putinism, I mean, based on undoubtedly on that kind of simplification. But only Russia matters. Russians are special. I mean, it sounds like it's Russian exceptionalism, right? It's, it also works very well to defend an oligarchy. This is extremely important. It's probably the first thing I should have said because Eileen, as an, as an interwar fascist, like a lot of other interwar fascists, had the idea that there should be a corporate state, that society was a kind of organism where everyone or every group had their particular place and that you couldn't actually change things. So Eileen was not just skeptical of or scornful of, he was an enemy of democracy. He thought that democracy was wrong because we're not truly individuals, we're all just cells in this larger body. And you wouldn't give your cell a vote, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't allow a cell to vote in what body it belongs to. That's ridiculous, says Eileen. And this corporatist idea is very convenient for the current Russian state because the people who are at the top of it, the oligarchical Putin clan, don't want anything to change. They don't want people to be thinking in terms of social advancement. So that's, that's also a very convenient part. What, what's, being, what's, what's interesting about what's happening is that these fascist ideas from the 20s and 30s are now being recycled as a kind of justification for oligarchy. Fascism is kind of becoming this way that oligarchy tells a story about itself. Putin sort of found Elim through this filmmaker. I remember from films uh, years back called uh, Mikhailov, I think. I mean, he's sort of, in a way, the the Steve Bannon figure, if you want the Trump analogy, who's trying to connect the political leader to some kind of intellectual underpinnings, which, curiously enough, turned out to, turn out to be fascist ideas from the 1920s. Yeah, it's. The, I mean, one another reason why I start with Russia is, to, you know, to be honest and to be and to be humble about our own country. Th- their thinkers are wilder and more interesting than than ours. So, you know, we've we, we've got our Steve Bannon, but you know, Mikhailkov is a cons- is, is as a filmmaker is obviously in a completely different category than than Steve Bannon. I mean, Bannon's a sort of pseudo intellectual, and these people you're talking <laughs> about are, however dangerous, are have some level of genuine intellect, genuine engagement with ideas. Yeah, I mean that they 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 read a lot more. And in the case of Mihalkov, I mean, he's just clearly, I mean, like his films or not, he's just clearly an artist of a different class. But I mean, the real the, the real important thinker on the Russian side is a guy called Vladislav Sorkov. That he's the most important ideologist. He's the one who's taken Elin's idea that nothing in this world is true and brought it into the 21st century by way of television and and then latterly by way of the internet. Yeah. So, I mean, sort of shifting, I think we've done an admirable job, Tim, of holding off on Trump mostly in this conversation until now. But I guess the question is, you know, why is this, how is this relevant to what's happening here? Is it that there's a similar process around the revival of certain uh, 20th century 
fascist type ideas? Or is it simply the way what's happening in Russia is being inflicted on us through Russian foreign policy? It's yeah, it's 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 all of the above and 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 so and so much more. Um, what, one way to think about this is in terms of world capitalism. So, is is the market about rules or is the market not about rules? In Russia, clearly the market is not about rules, and the people who have risen to the top as a result of Russian-style capitalism don't think that rules are real. They think that rules are false. They think that rules are for idiots. There are, of course, many people in in our version of capitalism who think the same thing, and Donald Trump is one of them. And the, the connection between Donald Trump and Russians, before all things, before we get to ideology, before we get to anything else, is that they both operate on that, on that assumption about capitalism, that the rules are for the idiots, that really it's all about deals, it's about personal connections, it's about getting around things. So yeah. the first connection between Russia and Trump, you know, well before the presidential elections or anything else, is that Russian mobsters start buying Trump properties in order to launder money. That's, you know, that's 20 years ago. So the, the way that Russians support Trump financially is that they set up shell companies and then they buy lots of his properties. So that, and that's the core of that. his business is, is a vehicle for money laundering, not only Russian, but very heavily Russian, yeah. in that you can buy these apartments anonymously, put dirty money in and sell them or have value that is then clean money. I mean, it's in 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 the in the in the period between his nomination as the Republican candidate and his his victory in the November sixteen elections, seventy percent of the real estate transactions involving Trump in the U.S. according to USA Today report were by shell companies. That's how he was making his money. Then it's hard for me to think that's a coincidence. But I think it's important to note that like there are huge loopholes in the way that we run our free market like anonymous real estate purchases, like anonymous companies that are legal in Delaware and other states, and like offshoring in general. And that's the realm that Trump and Russians have in common. It's in that realm that they met. The second thing about all this, which I think is incredibly important, is the gift that you have to have to be an eternity politician. So let's not deny that Mr. Trump has certain gifts because he does. He's very good at talking people into this cycle where what matters is an idealized version of the past where people like us were in charge. What matters is some time when America was great. What, what matters is looping back and, find, and, and thinking of you know, the enemies at home or abroad who have somehow gotten in the way of keeping us from being great. He's, he's good at that. And so as a, as a live person, he fits very well into this new form of eternity politics. The cyber component of that is that the Russian robots, and not only the Russian ones, but the, the, the Russian bots um, and, and other people on the internet try to break us down so that we think only in terms of friends and enemies. And that's, that's the, way that, the way that Russia intervenes in the overall conversation, which makes a candidate like Trump much more likely. The other thing which I would mention, which links the two together, is, is inequality. Mr. Trump is a kind of prophet of a future world of inequality. Russia shows you where you end up if you let inequality get completely out of hand. And America's on the verge of letting inequality get completely out of hand. And Mr. Trump is just one more nudge in that direction. So a lot of people characterize the kind of racial and social division that Trump promotes as, as a political value as populism. You don't particularly gravitate towards that term. Can you can you explain why you think Trump or the ways in which Trump is and isn't a populist? So eternity politics is not about substance. It's not about actually using the state to deliver something meaningful to people. Again, it's useful to look at the Russian example. The Russian state is not really that good at delivering basic things like roads and healthcare 
and um, a sense of a sense of fairness of the rule of law to people. The attorney, the attorney politician, instead of talking about what the state can do, talks about what other people prevent us, the good people, from doing. So an attorney politician like Mr. Trump is not going to come to power and actually get the state to do much of anything. And in this sense, I really don't think he's a populist. I think that word is misleading. Mm -hmm. A populist will say unfair things about groups, right? A populist might indulge in nationalist or even even racist understandings of others, but and as Mr. Trump has done. But a populist also generally has some kind of economic agenda on behalf of pe the people who the populist regards as unfairly treated or dispossessed. That's what Mr. Trump really doesn't have. The interesting thing about Mr. Trump is that so far anyway, most of what the government has done under on Mr. Trump's watch has been about not helping, but rather hurting the crucial people who elected him. And I think that's 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 what's characteristic. This the politics of eternity works on a completely different political logic. It's not saying the state's going to deliver you a better future by delivering you specific things. What it says is the state's going to instruct you about how you're to understand the pain that you're undergoing. So maybe I'll turn out to be wrong, but it seems really unlikely to me that Trump is going to work against economic inequality because economic inequality creates the pain that he can then mold. It seems very unlikely to me that they would ever do anything serious about opioids for the very same reason. Yeah. I've, I've always had a hard time with the idea that Trump really has long-term goals, ideology, a fundamental political purpose. I mean, at some basic level, he just doesn't seem a serious character the way Vladimir Putin or other autocrats and oligarchs are. I mean, he's a sort of carnival performer who's ended up in this role and seems to invent it from scratch every day when he gets up out of bed. I mean, is that do you, do you disagree with that characterization? I I think I I think I disagree somewhat or maybe I just like I I don't think it's easy to be a carnival performer, right? Can you juggle? You know, I can't. Well, no. I, I mean, as the, as I think you say, it's a, he's an unusual talent in that respect. I mean, his you know his yeah. ability to perform you know fake um, successful businessman. You know, he's he's carried off with tremendous aplomb, and it was being on reality television for so long that's you know enabled him to kind of outperform other people in politics. Yeah, I think that I, th that's 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 how I see it. I mean, I, he clearly has a skill set. And the skill set is a skill set that happens to work at a moment where entertainment is blurring into politics. You know, entertainment is about what we like, right? It's about what makes us feel good. Politics should be about what we need, um, the services or the rights or the laws that we need. Mr. Trump is a perfect creature for the moment where those two things are blurring together. And although I, I, I agree with you that he's not an ideologist, he's not a far-seeking thinker or planner, he is a very appropriate um, instrument or a very appropriate example of this moment in politics. I think there's no way he could have gotten where he got without the help of Mr. Putin and also without the help of some of our own domestic oligarchs. I think that would not have happened. On the other hand, one has to, I think, recognize and respect the talents that allow him to perform as a politician of eternity. He, he couldn't be a successful businessman, but he could play one on TV. And those are two different talent. Those are two different skill sets, but one of them really is a skill set. They're both really skill sets. Uh, the whole the whole last part of your book, you you focus on the on the Trump Russia connection, and what I think, I mean, you really you, you create a kind of context for it that I think is so interesting and so valuable. You take some of the emphasis away from 
the specifics of collusion. And you do that by portraying the connection as something much deeper, as a kind of identity. That is, Trump and Trump's people were so in sync with Putin and Putinism that almost everything they did was part of the same program. And they didn't even have to have a conscious conspiracy necessarily to be advancing the same goals. Yeah. Again, again, it's 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 all the above. I, I think that they're they're fundamentally in sync because Mr. Trump and Mr. Putin see the world in much the same way. The rules don't apply to us. The the rules are for the idiots. The rules are for the small guys. I think it's it's with Mr. Trump personally. I mean, the striking thing and kind of the humiliating thing, if you're an American, is that he doesn't even want to be Putin. He wants to be somebody that Putin likes. You know, he wants to be a second tier or a third tier Russian oligarch because that's, you know, that that's his highest ambition. And then, you know, the rest of the country is kind of dragged along into that. The, the, the second level of this is the, the actual cooperation, as you say, between Trump's people and the Russian state or, the, you know, the, this, the very, the, the, the astonishing series of contacts, whether it's, whether it's Mr. Manafort, um, who had worked for people close to the Russian state and who had worked for a pro-Russian Ukrainian president right before he came to Mr. Trump, whether it's Mr. Flynn, who's tweeting Russian material right down to the day of the election, uh, whether it's Mr. Papadopoulos, um, or whether it's Mr. Page, who are in very intimate personal connections with representatives of the Russian state or envoys of the Russian state, and they're serving as his foreign policy advisors, whether it's Wilbur Ross, who had and still has um, live investments in Russian crony capitalism. It's astonishing how basically everybody at the top has has some kind of extraordinary connection with the Russian state in 2016. And it's almost as though it's too much for us to process that simultaneously you have um, an individual, Mr. Trump, who just kind of likes Mr. Putin and is supported by him. And you have all the, this whole cast of characters who are in their own way are doing the same thing. In addition to that, you have the Russian cyber campaign on behalf of Mr. Trump all happening at the same time. And those are, you know, those are big stories, all of them. What I'm trying to do is, is show how they all come together. I mean, it has the density of connections of a, of a single brain, right? I mean, there's so many financial, ideological, personal connections that you can't keep them all in mind at one time. And if you get focused on any one of them, you sort of lose lose the big picture, which I, I think just to wrap up here a little bit, Tim, the, the description I love is you call, uh, you refer to Trump as the payload of a Russian cyber weapon. I can't really do any better than that. Yeah, that's that, that's where we are. I mean, there's a, there's a serious, there, there's something, there are a lot of serious things going on. And, and one of them is, you know, that we need to think about. And one of them is the relationship between the cyber world and the real world. You know, the, the, the political world that we've created is largely a function of, of the printing press. It's largely a function of a certain stage of technological development. If we want to be free people, if we want to have the rule of law in this new technological world, we have to think about how it's going to work. We can't just say, oh, yes, the new tech is going to do what the old tech did, but better. That's clearly not true. You know, we have to think about how we're going to use the, use the new tech. Because if we don't, then other people will. Russians carried out a very conscious operation inside the American internet in order to elect Mr. Trump. They weren't the only people doing it, but it is very striking that foreigners could do that and have the success that they wanted to have. I mean, even underlying that are more fundamental. What we have to watch out for is that we humans end up doing stuff in the real world as a result of things that are planted in our consciousness 
in the unreal world, on the internet, the way that we see things, process things, and then what we end up doing, like for example, electing a president, can be affected by what unseen hands are very consciously trying to manipulate us to do. I'm not saying that this is something that we can't get over. I'm just saying that it is something that we we have to confront. Mr. Trump is an example of cyber to human. You, you start out in the cyber world and then you end up with something happening in the human world. And then once it happens, we humans then start to use our human brains to justify it and to rationalize it and just, and just explain how it might be normal. But it's not normal. It's something we have to confront and figure out. I've been speaking to Timothy Snyder. His new book is The Road to Unfreedom, Russia, Europe, America. Tim, thanks for joining me today. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today's show. But I've got a recommendation for you, a new podcast from Panoply called Empire on Blood. It's a seven-part true crime series reported by the award-winning journalist Steve Fishman. Steve and I used to work together at New York Magazine years ago. He's a fantastic reporter, and he spent seven years investigating this story. It's a gripping tale of murder, betrayal, and one man's journey to overturn his life sentence for a double homicide that he did not commit. And you can binge this one. All seven episodes of Empire and Blood are available now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. <laughs>